is speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. Let's bow our heads as we begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we're able to get together to study your word this evening. And Father, we pray that as we do so, that you'll send your Holy Spirit to guide us, to bless us, to draw us close to you. We pray that you'll surround us with the presence of your holy angels. We pray that you'll come into this room. We pray that you'll speak to each one of our hearts. And we pray that you help us to understand your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the mystery of the lost ark. Out of all the archaeological discoveries that people have endeavoured to make, the Ark of the Covenant is by far the greatest prize of them all. And yet, it has not yet been placed in a museum despite all of the claims that it has been discovered. And so we ask ourselves the question, where is the Ark of the Covenant? And by the way, when we speak about the Ark of the Covenant, we're speaking about the golden chest not the boat. That's Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is the boat. The golden chest is the Ark of the Covenant. Some people get confused over that. All right, so what we're going to do is have a quick look at some of the different uh, claims to where the Ark of the Covenant might have gone and what may have happened to it. We are going to begin, as we do, in Egypt, in ancient Egypt. The very last reference to the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible is during the reign of Solomon. Now, when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam came to the throne. And while Rehoboam was reigning, Shishak, Pharaoh of Egypt, invaded Palestine. And we know that as a part of his invasion, he sacked the temple. The Ark of the Covenant is never mentioned after that particular point. As a result, there are many people who believe that Shishak took it to Egypt. However... There's no actual direct evidence for that. He may have gone to Tanis. Some people believe. Um, others believe that it was taken to um, Elephantine Island and stored there um, during Manasseh's reign. Now, so that deals with Egypt. The next place that we're going to travel to is Ethiopia. And of course, in Ethiopia today, there are Ethiopian priests who claim to this day that they have the Ark of the Covenant here in this small chapel hidden away um, where they have had it since the time of the Babylonian invasion, some claim. Others claim that it was taken to Axum by Menelik, the son of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Another theory is that the Ark of the Covenant was taken to Babylon in Iraq. And the reason that people believe this one here is that when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Palestine, he destroyed the temple. We know that Shishak raided the temple, but Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. And so there are those who believe that it's very likely that it was at that particular time that Nebuchadnezzar would have taken all the treasures back to Iraq. Now, there's another theory that I found very interesting, that the Ark of the Covenant was taken to the Dunghi Mountains. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that. Um, through Yemen, just before the Babylonian invasion from Mount Nebo. And there are a couple of theories in relationship to Mount Nebo. And there are people today who claim to have wood from the Ark of the Covenant from Zimbabwe. Now, there are a number of legends in relationship to the Knights Templar. 
And there are those who believe it was taken to uh, this particular area of France, in southern France. There are others who believe that the Knights Templar took it to Charter's Cathedral. Others who would say that they took it to Roslyn Chapel in Scotland. And there are actually plans in the future to do an archaeological dig into the crypt underneath Roslyn Chapel in Scotland. Very interesting place, Roslyn Chapel. Very small chapel, but full of interesting symbolism. Some of the most interesting symbolism that you'll find. There are those who believe that it was taken and placed in the Church of St. John in Lateran in Rome. Now that was, of course, was the the headquarters of the Roman Catholic Church before St. Peter's Basilica. And so there are some who believe it was placed there. The British Israelites believe that the Ark of the Covenant is underneath the hill of Tara in Ireland. And a few years ago, there was a whole bunch of them that got arrested because they started an illegal archaeological dig there in an effort to find the Ark of the Covenant. From there, we go to Israel. A whole bunch of theories in Israel. Um, Some years ago, there was a man who claimed that he found the Ark of the Covenant under the Temple Mountain in Jerusalem. Um, Also, while we're in Israel, there are those who believe that it was placed in Mount Nebo in Jordan. Um, There's some, some evidence Uh, related to that from the book of Maccabees in relationship to Jeremiah and his role with the Ark of the Covenant. There are those who believed it was hidden away with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a copper scroll called the Treasure Scroll. It didn't list the Ark of the Covenant, but it did speak about treasure. And then there are those who believe that it was secreted away underneath the Calvary escarpment where Jesus died. And that has become quite a major theme in recent times. Lastly, we travel to Warwickshire in England. And many people believe that the Knights Templar took it to this particular location in England. If you go to Warwickshire, you can do a tour through Warwick Castle, but they won't show you whether or not they have the Ark of the Covenant there. So the question really arises is this. Why is there so much interest? Why is there so much excitement about the Ark of the Covenant? Why do people want to find this particular object so much? Is it because it is made out of gold? The whole thing is made out of gold. The lid is made out of one solid piece of gold. Is that the real interest in the Ark of the Covenant? The answer is no. One of the things that we looked at in the video last night is something that is revealed in our world when we study the Word of God. In our, when we study the Bible, the Bible speaks about the Holy Land. Isn't that so? Where's that? Palestine. So in our earth, we have the Holy Land. In the Holy Land, you have the Holy City. What's that city? Jerusalem. In the Holy City, you have the Holy Mountain. What's that mountain? Mount Zion. On Mount Zion, you have the Holy Temple. And around the Holy Temple, you have a courtyard. And then you have a holy place. And then you have a most holy place. What is God doing here? He is drawing us a bullseye. Isn't that so? He is directing us to what he considers to be the most holy, the most important thing here on this planet. So when you go to the most holy place, what is the next thing you find? It is the holy ark of God. And what do you find in the holy ark of God? What was it that it was built to contain? What is the real treasure that is there? The holy ark of God was built to contain the holy law of God. 
And so God is telling us, he is revealing to us what he considers to be most holy here in this world. Now, the story behind this goes back a long way. But I want you to notice that all the way over in the book of Revelation, when we look at the temple in heaven, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19, what is it that is holy in the temple in heaven? The Bible says, and the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. So the ark that was here on earth is a copy of the great original that is in heaven. And this is one of the reasons why God considers it to be something that is so holy because it symbolizes something that is central in heaven. Now, if we turn in our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, we're going to go back all the way back to the beginning and we're going to see where this controversy and where this issue began. We've looked at this passage before. We're going to look at it again because this time we're going to look for what is the central issue that is taking place when evil first entered our world. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 verse, uh, you'll find that on page 282. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. And here the Bible speaks about Satan. Before the creation of this world, when Satan first fell, it says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Let's take a look for a moment at what is actually taking place here in this passage. Satan is trying to overcome, overtake the government of God. Isn't that so? He is trying to accomplish the first military takeover of God's government. So the question that arises is this. If God has a government in heaven defined by the existence of his throne right there, what is it that is the foundation of the existence of government? What defines the existence of government versus no government at all? And of course, the answer is very simple. The existence of law. Where you have a law, you have a government. Where you have no law, you have no government. Isn't that so? So here we find, and when, when it comes to one person taking over another person's government, there is only one issue because you want to change the law of that government. Isn't that how it works? We have Tony Abbott who wants to take over Julia Gillard's government so that he can change the law. Isn't that so? And that's what Lucifer wanted to do in the first place way back there. We find it even more clearly when we go over to the book of Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. This was the original issue right here. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 14, the Bible says, About Lucifer, you are the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until what was found in him? Iniquity was found in him. Sin, evil. The question that arises is this. What is sin? What is evil? Well, we find the answer defined for us 
in the book of 1 John. Let's turn our Bibles to 1 John. John gives us the answer in the clearest, plainest, simplest language. 1 John, you'll find that on page 491. Page 491. The Bible says here, Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Let's stop here for a moment and let's do a summary of what we have covered so far. We found that Satan wanted to overcome the government of God in heaven. He wanted to sit on God's throne. The law of God is central to the government in heaven. He wants to change the law of God. He wants to do away with the law of God. You see, the law of God reveals where our allegiance lies. The issue in heaven when Satan first sinned was the issue of worship. Satan wanted to be worshipped, isn't that so? Yes, indeed he did. And what is the highest form of worship? What is it that truly defines who you are surrendered to? It is who you obey. Isn't that so? That's who it is. Now when we consider who it is who we obey, the Bible says sin, disobedience, is the transgression of God's law. However, we need to ask ourselves this question right here. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, the Bible says sin is the transgression of God's law. We have to ask ourselves a very simple question. Which law is the Bible referring to when it says that sin is the transgression of the law, the breaking of the law? That's a very valid question. There are a number of laws in the Bible, isn't that so? You have, you have the ceremonial law, you have health laws, you have hygiene laws, you have the laws of the theocracy, you have the Ten Commandments, etc. Which one of those is it that defines what sin is? Well, let's turn our Bibles for the answer to this to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And we will read verse 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. That's page 456. And here the Bible says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So let's look at what Paul actually says here. He says, I wouldn't have known what sin was unless there had been a law that had said, this particular thing is sin, and then he quotes a law. Which law is that? Ten Commandments where it says, thou shalt not covet. Therefore, we know the Ten Commandments defines what sin is. Isn't that so? Good. All right, so let's put that one up there on the screen. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. The Bible defines it as the Ten Commandments. Commandments. Let's go to James chapter 2. Let's see it over here in James chapter 2. All the way down past Hebrews, then you come to the book of James. James chapter 2, that's page 487. And notice how the Bible speaks about it here. In verse 8, the Bible says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, 
You shall love your neighbour as yourself you do well. So what is the royal law that James is speaking about? Well, we place it in its context. We read down a few verses. In verse 11 it says, For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if you commit no adultery, yet if you kill, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak you, he says, and so do as those that are judged by the law of what? Liberty. So the Bible describes it here as a royal law of liberty. And which law is that that it's speaking of? Which one is it quoting from? That's the Ten Commandments right there. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. The Bible speaks of that as being a law of liberty. So how is it then that a law produces liberty? Aren't laws there to do the opposite of produce liberty? Isn't that how it works? Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Let's say that tomorrow, here in New South Wales, the New South Wales government abolished all road laws. How much liberty would you have to drive on the road? You, your liberty would vanish overnight because you would not dare to take your life in your hands and step out on that road. Laws are given to produce liberty. And that's what the law of God is all about. That's why the Bible speaks of the Ten Commandments as being a law of liberty. It's here to set us free. And we're going to look at the reasons as we work through. The next thing that we need to ask ourselves, the next question we need to ask ourselves is this. What is the purpose of the law? And this is where lots of people come unstuck. And because they misunderstand the purpose of the law, they don't ever like to talk about the law. So what is the purpose of the law? Let's turn, well, we're right here in James. Let's go over to the book of James. And chapter 1, verse 23. The Bible says, For if anyone be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his natural face in a mirror. Looks his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes his way and straight away forgets what manner of man he was. But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. So the Bible speaks about the law as being a mirror. Now what is the purpose of a mirror? What does a mirror do for you? It shows you things, doesn't it? About who? Who does, it, who does a mirror show you things about? Yourself, that's right. Okay, hold that thought. Let's look at another passage in the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3, and we'll go down to verse 24, where the Bible says this, Wherefore the law was our school teacher to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified how? By faith. So well, the Bible says here that the law is a school teacher. Okay, so let's put these two things together. This is what we know. The mirror, the law is a mirror. It's going to show us something about ourselves. Isn't that so? It's going to teach us something that is going to direct us to who? To Jesus Christ. So when we get to Jesus Christ, we will be justified by what? By faith. All right, I'm glad you've got that. I think we need to make that very, very clear right there because there are some people who misunderstand the law and 
I start to speak about the law and they say, oh, oh, you know, you shouldn't be speaking about the law. You know, you're saying that the law saves us. When you understand the purpose of the law, you need to understand it is impossible for the law to save you. The law has never saved anybody. That is not its purpose. The law is a mirror to show you what you are really like. It is a school teacher. It reveals to you that you are a sinner in need of a saviour. In fact, if there was no law, if there was no law, there would be nothing to teach us that we are a sinner in need of a saviour. Because there's nothing to show us what sin is. In fact, if you go to Romans chapter 4, Romans 4, Romans 4, and let's see here. And verse 15, that's page 456, Romans 4, verse 15. The Bible says, because the law works wrath. For where no law is, there is no what? Did Satan sin in heaven? Did he transgress? Was there a law in heaven? Impossible for him to transgress if there was no law in heaven. Which law is it that defines what sin is? Ten Commandments. Simple as that. Okay, let me illustrate this. Some years ago, when my boys were a bit smaller than what they are right now, we had some friends come and visit us one afternoon and we were having a very pleasant time, all of us together right there as, you know, the adults, we were sitting in the living room having a social time, chatting backwards and forwards and while we were doing that, a thunderstorm came over. And it rained, rained hard and did that for quite some time. And suddenly after a period of time, we suddenly realised that we couldn't hear the kids anywhere. It's like, oh, where are the kids? So we went looking for them and we found them. And they had gone and found the biggest mud puddle that they could find and they had jumped in it. Now let me ask you a question. If I was to bring a mirror to these children. Can the mirror clean them? No, the mirror can't clean them. So what does the mirror do? It tells them, it gives them a message, you are covered in mud, you need to be hosed off, right? Not coming in my house looking like that. You get hosed off first. The law is exactly the same. It is a mirror. It tells us you are a sinner in need of a saviour. The law can't, you can't take that mirror and rub it all over yourself and get clean, can you? The law can't make you clean. Only Jesus can make you clean. The purpose of the law is not to save you. It is to point you to Jesus who can. Is that clear? Good. Praise the Lord. I have some people who come to me with this concept that In fact, let's go back to uh, Galatians. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3 again. Sometimes people come to this concept that, oh, you know, there's been two different standards of salvation down through history. And people in the Old Testament, they were saved by keeping the law. And people in the New Testament, they're saved by faith. What did Paul say? Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11. That's page 470. Paul says this, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. Let's, 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 let's think about that for a moment. How many people? How many people does Paul say is justified by the law? 
No man. The law was no standard of salvation different in the Old Testament from the New Testament. No man is justified by the law. He goes on, he says, it is evident, it is obvious because the just shall live by faith. No one is justified by the law because the just shall live by faith. And there he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from the book of Habakkuk to prove his point. It's as simple as that. He quotes from it there to prove his point. Okay, let's continue on. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And let's look at where does the law actually fit in with a person who is saved. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. The Bible says how salvation is found, the only way that salvation is found. It says this, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So how does the Bible say that we are saved? Gift of God, which is, what's that gift? Grace. There is no other means of salvation other than by grace. Let me ask you a question now. Are we we saved in our sins or from our sins? What does the Bible say? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Sins, Isn't that so? So grace is the power by which God saves us. We are saved from our sins. Therefore, grace is the power by which God saves us from our sins. What is sin? The Bible says transgression of the law. Therefore, grace is the power by which God saves us from transgressing God's law. Let me share with you, friends, if there's anybody here who has ever tried to keep God's law without God's grace, how long did you last? We've probably all tried it on occasion. You don't last very long. But when God's grace comes into your life and God changes you and converts you into a new person, suddenly you have some new power in your life. Isn't that so? New power to live like Jesus lived, to follow the example of Jesus. And so grace is a wonderful thing that enables us to be able... You know, I sometimes think about it like this. The controversy began in heaven over the law of God. This was the one thing that Satan hated more than anything else. And that controversy has continued. Never ceases to amaze me how people are so opposed to the Ten Commandments. I mean, have you read the Ten Commandments? Is there anything there that is disagreeable? Is there anything there that is not good? You know, I was doing a fine job of breaking the law of God before I became a Christian. I did not need to become a Christian so that I could continue breaking the law of God. People say, oh, you know, the law of God's been done away with. It's been nailed to the cross. I didn't need to become a Christian so I could keep breaking the law of God. I needed to become a Christian so that I could stop. And that's what grace is all about. Grace gives us the power to live after the example of Jesus. We find that today Satan has his finest allies in his attack against the law of God amongst Christians who keep maintaining that somehow the law of God was done away with in the New Testament. Have you noticed in the New Testament that the law of God is spoken of twice as often as in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, one every 80 verses. In the New Testament, one every 40 verses. 
And yet you'll find people who'll find those few small verses here and there that seem to give a negative twist to the law of God. And they say, here it is. It's all been done away with when the Bible says the exact opposite of that. When you read the law of God, we find that the Bible plainly tells us no one is justified by the law. It is there to direct us to Jesus Christ. And the law of God is all about just one thing. And we find that one thing when we turn to the book of Matthew and we read about the new law that Jesus gave. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. What I'll do is this. I'll put the new law up on the screen. Here it is. Let's read it off the screen. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. This is an interesting one because occasionally there are people who come to me and say, you know, Jesus gave us this new law here and when he gave us this new law, he did away with the Ten Commandments. Well, how on earth does that work? Have you read the Ten Commandments? The first four commandments are all about love to who? God. The last six commandments are all about love to who? Each other. What is Jesus saying here? He is summarising the Ten Commandments. By the way, that's not new. Did you know that? Jesus wasn't giving a new law. That's where those verses are found. Whereabouts is that? That's the Old Testament. Jesus is summarising the law of God. Notice what he says here. He says in verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. And then the verse that nobody reads, On these two laws hang, or these two commandments hang, how much of the law? The whole lot. You see, friends, the law of God is just about one thing. It is all about love. That's why when you go to Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13 and verse 10, the Bible simply says in page 459, love works no ill to his neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. If you love God, you keep the first four, and if you love each other, you keep the last six. It's that simple. It's all about love, friends. We don't keep the law of God to be saved. Keeping the law of God will not save anybody. You don't keep the law of God to be saved. You keep the law of God because you are saved. Is that clear? It is a love response to Jesus where Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience is a symptom of where our heart is. It is a symptom that God has come into our heart. He has changed us and he has made us into a new person. Reverse that equation, then of course disobedience is a symptom of what? Rebellion against God. Us coming to God and saying, no, I know you say to do this and this and this and this and this right here, but I'm not going to do that. And if disobedience is a symptom of rebellion, it is a symptom of a lack of conversion. Law of God shows us where our heart really is because the issue is all about worship. Now, at this particular point, a lot of people ask me about the passage that I read during question time last night, Colossians chapter 2. Doesn't the Bible say in Colossians chapter 2 that law is nailed to the cross? Isn't that what it says? Colossians 2, 
And they say, well, you know, what are you even standing up the front and talking about the law of God for? Colossians 2 says it was nailed to the cross. Let's read it right here in Colossians 2 and verse 14. The Bible says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it where? Nailing it to the cross. And so the question is this. Is the Ten Commandments nailed to the cross and done away with? Well, if you're going to nail the Ten Commandments to the cross and you're going to do away with it, then you're going to have to do away with a tremendous amount of the New Testament. You're going to have to do away with everything the New Testament says about the law of God. You see, if you turn to Romans chapter 3, it's almost as if Paul, looking forward in prophetic vision, down to the end of time, recognised that there would be people in the future who would say the law is done away with. And so he asked himself the question, he said, okay, how can I write this down in the plainest possible language so that nobody can ever get it wrong? Romans chapter 3 and verse 31, page 456. He says this, Do we then do away with the law of God through faith? That's pretty simple, isn't it? Do we do away with the law of, God for, law of God through faith? God forbid, yes, we do what? Establish the law of God. So here's the problem that you have if you want to nail the law of God to the cross. If you're going to nail the law of God, Ten Commandments to the cross, then you've got a direct contradiction with the majority of Scripture. You see, the Bible says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 12, a couple of pages, a page over, Wherefore the law, we know that this is the Ten Commandments he's talking about from verse 7. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. You know, anything that the Bible says is holy, just and good. Anything that God places a bullseye on to show us what he considers to be the most holy thing is going to be what the devil attacks the most. Isn't that so? So how do we deal with Colossians chapter 2? Very, very simply, we mentioned there are a number of laws in the Bible. You have the Ten Commandments and you have the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law, unlike the Ten Commandments, was the law of God that dealt with all of the sacrifices and the services and the feast days of the temple. Now, several nights ago, we looked at this. The, the law that dealt with all of the services of the temple and the sacrifices that took place, what happened to that law? When did it come to an end? It ended at the cross. When did it begin? It began with sin. There is no death before sin. I want to show you the contrast between these two laws here this evening because this is critical for us to understand this particular subject. Number one, we find that the Ten Commandments were spoken by God himself personally to the people. In contrast to that, the ceremonial law was spoken by Moses to the people. The Ten Commandments was written by God. In fact, it is the only portion of Scripture that he personally wrote himself other than 
the rest of Scripture which he wrote through somebody else. He carved it, the Bible says, with his own finger personally into two tables of stone. In contrast to that, the ceremonial law was written by Moses. The Ten Commandments were written in stone to show that they were last forever. The ceremonial law was written in a book. The Ten Commandments were placed in the ark. They were the centerpiece of the ark. They were the purpose for which the ark was made. In contrast to that, the ceremonial law, the book, was placed in a separate compartment in the side of the ark. It was not the center. And so here we have some thoughts, and people say, okay, that's some, some uh, circumstantial evidence. Now let's let, get, down, get down to the really important ones, shall we? Here they come. The Ten Commandments was established before sin. Romans chapter 4 and verse 15, the Bible says, where there is no law, there is no sin. So we know that the Ten Commandments were there before sin. The ceremonial law, of course, did not come into place until after sin. It came about because of sin. It involved the death of animals and there is no death before sin. The Ten Commandments, the Bible says, are holy, just and good. The ceremonial law, the Bible says, are changeable, weak and unprofitable. See the problem that you have. Look at the problem right here. Let me illustrate it to you very clearly. If you're going to make these two laws the same laws, you've got one verse here that says it's holy, just and good. The other verse that says it's changeable, weak and unprofitable. You make the Bible to look foolish. It's no wonder that so many times there are so many atheists out there who look at Christians and say, you guys are a bunch of nutters. The Bible contradicts itself. The Bible doesn't contradict itself, friends. We just try and find excuses to get rid of God's law. For what reason? I have no idea. The Bible says that the Ten Commandments are everlasting. And the ceremonial law finished at the cross. It began with sin and ended when Jesus paid the penalty for sin on the cross. And of course... The Ten Commandments are spoken of as being a law of liberty and a royal law, whereas the ceremonial law, the Bible says, was against us, was contrary to us. And so we have a clear distinction between the two. One law is eternal, the eternal constitution of the government of God, and the other was all about pointing forward to what Jesus would do for our salvation. Now, what about the question then? I often get asked this question, and they say, well, people ask me the question, well, what about being under the law? If you're going to say that the Ten Commandments is still there, well, don't blame me. The Bible says that. Does that mean that we are all under the law? Well, that statement is based on the assumption of what it means to be under the law. Many people assume that to be under the law means that you are obeying the law. Whereas the Bible defines it as being the exact opposite. Let's get a biblical definition, shall we? For what the Bible means to be under the law, rather than just assuming what it means. Let's go to Romans chapter 3, page 456. Romans chapter 3, and we'll start reading in verse 19. Here the Bible says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are where? Under the law, right? Yes. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become what? 
guilty before God. So being under the law is to be guilty of breaking the law. Why is every mouth stopped? The answer is very simple. When you go down to verse 23, the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Very simply, friends, the Bible says to be under the law means to be guilty of breaking the law. Look at what it says over in Romans chapter 6 again. Verse 14. For sin, the transgression or the breaking of the law, shall not have dominion over you. Why? For you are not under the law... But under what? Grace. You see, grace has given you the power to be able to overcome the temptations that come your way. Now you're no longer under the law. You are under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. That would reverse the equation. Isn't that so? Let me share this with an illustration of something that happened to me when I was a young lad. As I mentioned before, I grew up in Tasmania, the promised land. And in the back of our property, we had this patch of bush right here. And just where I'm standing, where I took the photo of that particular patch of bush right there, was where the paddock began and it sloped down to our woodshed from that particular point. And one day, I must have been maybe 13 or 14, I can't remember, maybe 12. I was walking along the edge of the bush right here and a tiger snake came out. Came charging out and, uh, of course, um, we weren't real fond of tiger snakes in those days, so I went hunting around for a big stick, as you do. Anyway, the tiger snake, he recognised that this was not a good thing and so he went into the bush right here, he went into the first, right on the edge and he found a big clump of cut grass and he wound himself up in the middle of that clump of cut grass and he would not come out. I'm poking away and prodding. It's probably a good thing he didn't come out, you know. There's no way he was coming out of there. And so I'm thinking, oh, how am I going to get, how am I going to get this tiger snake out of this, out of this clump, of, clump of grass? Unfortunately... I had a box of matches in my pocket. Now, I should mention that this particular day, it was about 40 degrees. We have that in Tasmania sometimes. And the wind was blowing. But I had tunnel vision on this snake. I've got to get this snake, you know. So I've dropped a match in on top of it. Now, you'll notice, you'll notice that these trees here, notice that they're kind of blackened. On their bark, in a very short space of time, the whole hillside was on fire. And the Glen Hewen Fire Brigade turned up. My, my brother came home not long after it started. He called the Fire Brigade. And I'll never forget, they had this old red petrol-powered international truck and it came winding up the side of our hill in first gear. I'm thinking, this thing is never going to arrive. There's our Upper Hewen Fire Station in all its glory. This is old fire trucks winding its way up the hill. Meanwhile, the side of our hill looks a bit like that. Well, to cut a long story short, the Glen Ewan Fire Brigade turned up, the Ranelagh Fire Brigade turned up, the Judbury Fire Brigade turned up. They put a pump on the side of our dam. They took about this much water off the top of our dam. They got around on the top side of that fire. They dragged those hoses up the side of our hill and they put that fire out. Praise the Lord. Well, then they came... By this stage, my dad had gotten home. 
And so they have to do their report as to how the fire starts, right? So they come to ask my dad. He's like, I have no idea. He hadn't had time to talk to us. He's like, I don't know how the fire started. He said, you better talk to the boys. <laughs> and there was the fire chief of the Glen Hewan Fire Brigade and the Judbury Fire Brigade and the Ranlar Fire Brigade and some of the other firemen. And these guys are covered in black soot. They are sweating profusely. They had been spending a very pleasant afternoon in front of their air conditioners watching the cricket. (laughs) And they gathered around me and they said, how did the fire start? And at that particular point, I wished the ground would open up and swallow me whole. And I've gone, um, trying to flush out a snake. (laughs) Got to tell you, they weren't very impressed. They did not look very pleased at all. Anyway, they went across away by themselves and they talked amongst themselves for a little while and they came back and they said, did you know there's a total fire ban today? And being a fool, I said, uh, no. (laughs) They said, did you know there's a $2,000 fine for lighting a fire day? You know, you do that today, they'd lock you in jail and throw the key away. But back then it was only a $2,000 fine. At that particular point, I saw my pocket money for the rest of my life disappear out the door. I'm like, um, no. And they said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to let you off. We're going to report it as causes unknown. But don't you go and light any more fires. When I lit that fire, friends, I came under the law. When those firemen came to me and they said, we're going to let you off, I came out from being under the law and now I was under grace. And I've got to tell you, it's a good feeling when you come out from being under the law and suddenly you're under grace. That's a wonderful feeling. Now, as those fire trucks were driving down our road, do you think I was running up the top of that hill with the box of matches in my pocket starting the next fire? Not on your life. Why wasn't I starting another fire? Because now I was under grace. It was the last thing in the world that I wanted to do. By God's grace and a lesson well learned from that day to this, I have never lit another bushfire. (laughs) Praise God. You see, friends, when we come under grace, we come under God's love because God forgives us of our transgression of his law. His law is what points us to him. His law is what points us to that need of forgiveness. We come out from being under the law and we come under the power of God's love. As we mentioned, love is the fulfilling of the law. The Bible says the law is not done away with. If you're going to do away with the law of God, you have to do away with the character of God. Because God is love. His law is love. This is why Satan hates the law of God so much, recruits anybody he possibly can to get rid of the law of God, is because it is all about God's character of love. As the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 31, we establish the law. Now, 
We have been talking about the return of Jesus, night by night, isn't that so? The time in which we live right now. We've spoken about the globalization of our world. We've spoken about the gathering of the world together against God. We've spoken about the beast. We have mentioned the false prophet, the dragon, the image to the beast. The question we have to ask ourselves is this. At the end of time, who is it? The Bible says that gains the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, over the false prophet and over the dragon. Who is it that gains the victory over all of them? We find the answer in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, the Bible says, The dragon was wroth, angry with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Here we find the dragon is angry with somebody, he's going to make war with somebody, goes to make war with the remnant of her seed, which do what? Which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Then the other night we read in Revelation chapter 14, Third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast, his image, his mark, his forehead, or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Well, who gains the victory over the beast, his image, his mark, etc.? Go down to verse 12, and the Bible gives you the answer right there. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You see, the faith of Jesus and the commandments of God are two things that can never be separated. Because without the faith of Jesus, you can't keep the commandments of God. You ever try to do it on your own? You'll last about 30 seconds. There are those who come to me and say, oh, you know, the Ten Commandments is not in the New Testament. I went as far into the New Testament as I could go. Revelation 22, verse 14, the Bible says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Friends, we find who it is who gains the victory at the end of time. Who it is, the Bible says, they welcome Jesus back. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Why don't you consider for a moment, Jesus, when he came to this earth to give his life for us, Jesus gave his life for you and I because he could not bear the thought of spending eternity without you. That's why he died. He had to die because the wages of sin is death because we had all come under the law. We were all condemned. We were all guilty and had all come under the wages of sin. So Jesus came and paid the penalty for that broken law so that we could be forgiven of our sins and receive eternal life. Don't we, reserve a wonder, don't we serve a wonderful God? Now that was a plan that cost Jesus enormously, wouldn't you say? He comes to this earth as a human being. He suffers here for 33 and a half years and then he dies on Calvary. Do you think that that's something that he would do lightly? Not at all. Nobody in their right mind would, would purposely bring that kind of pain and suffering on themselves unless there was a very compelling reason. Let me share with you, friends, this was the only way that Jesus could secure your salvation. Now, he did have another option. You see, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And where there is no law, there is no sin. The alternative for Jesus was to abolish the law of God. 
You see, the moment that he abolishes the law of God, does away with it, sin ceases to exist. And if sin no longer existed, then we can all be saved. Friends, God could not do that. And the reason that he could not do that was because to do away with the law of God would be to do away with his character. Because the law of God is all about love. When we look to Calvary, friends, we see the cost of love. And Calvary demonstrates in the clearest possible language the immutability and unchangeable character of the law of God. Let's go over to 1 John. I want to show you something in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 5, the Bible says this. Not verse 5, sorry, verse 4. He that says, I know him, and keeps not his commandments, is a what? Is a liar. And the truth is not in him. We go over to chapter 5 and verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Friends, the law of God is a wonderful thing. It's not grievous. It reminds me of a story that illustrates the difference between two approaches to the law of God. We'll use this young lady here as an example. And let's say that she doesn't look very happy, does she? Well, here's the story. Here's the story. There was a lady who fell in love with a man and after a short romance, she married him. And she was so excited to be married to this man. It was just such a a wonderful thing. And on the first morning of their honeymoon, she woke up, they both woke up, and her brand new husband handed her a list. And on that list was all the things that she was expected to do. How she was to get him his slippers in the morning, get him his, his dressing gown, how she was to make his hot cuppa in the morning and bring him his newspaper, and how she was to make his breakfast and it was to be just so, how was she was to wash his clothes, how his ironing was to be done, and the list went on and on and on all the way down. This was a relationship where there was no love. That man did not love her and he treated her dreadfully and she looked a bit like that. Pretty sad and sorry looking. Some years later, by the grace of God, he died. (laughs) And sometime after that, She met another man. She fell in love with this other man and she was a little bit more careful this time, but she'd found a really wonderful man who loved her enormously and she loved him in return. And so she went looking from looking a little bit like that to looking like this. She was just glowing in love. Many years passed and one day... 
she was cleaning the attic. And in the attic, she found a stray box. And as she was sorting through all of the rubbish that was in the box, in the bottom of that box, she came across the old list. And she thought, oh, this will be fun. I'll read through it. And she's starting to read through it. And as she's going through it, she's going, now, wait a minute. I actually do that. And then she read the next one. She's like, I do that too. And then she read another one. She's like, oh, I do that. She read down the list and she realized she was doing everything that was on the list. Friends, what was it that made the difference? Love made the difference, friends. And that's what makes the difference with the law of God. If you love Jesus... It will make all of the difference in your life because you will love to keep his law. If you don't love Jesus, the law of God will be the greatest burden that you can possibly imagine. Friends, God is love. His law is a transcript of his character of love. Our love for God is demonstrated when Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. How many of you want to keep God's commandments for the one reason alone that you love him. Praise God. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your incredible love that you have for us. We pray that you'll bless us now with your presence. We pray that you'll draw us close to you and help us to experience that love more and more all the time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02 4973 3456.